Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. As we approach our 100th episode, I continue to try to find crimes from all across America to discuss on the podcast. While it appears most of the major crimes in America occur in California or Texas, I do try to find some interesting cases from smaller and less populous states as well. Today's case is out of Rhode Island, America's smallest state. But before we get into the episode, let's cover the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found on the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. During the 1600s, many European settlers fled to the New World of the American colonies to seek religious freedom from state-run religion such as the Church of England. But due to the power that countries like England held over the colonies, the churches in the colonies often followed strict doctrine under the supervision of the Church of England. For people like Roger Williams, a Baptist minister, the move to the Plymouth colony was a mere stepping stone as they sought to establish a truly free practice of religion far from the corrupt church leaders across the pond. After being summoned twice before English-aligned colonial leaders for speaking out against the King of England and Church of England's actions in the New World, Williams chose to assemble a following of like-minded individuals and set out for his own land where he would be free to speak however he wanted and worship however he desired. In the spring of 1636, Williams and his group set out for new lands in what is now Rhode Island. The first area he chose to settle was deemed to be too close to lands owned by English companies, so his group moved even further away and befriended a local tribe and established the Providence Plantations. He chose the name as he felt divine providence had brought him to the location. The town grew over time as it welcomed families that wanted to escape various edicts from England and its church. Disagreements did occur, and families were sometimes kicked out of the community, or they left on their own and settled new towns in the region. The Providence Plantation was fiercely independent, and because the area was settled by those seeking freedom from England, it was no surprise that Rhode Island became the first colony to call for a Continental Congress, and the first to declare its independence from the Crown of England. Because Rhode Island had been settled by independent groups of freedom seekers, it never had the capital to buy up large portions of land or claim larger territory, and 400 years after Roger Williams moved into the area, it remains America's smallest state in regards to landmass. With an overall state population of just over a million, it is currently the 45th most populous state. However, due to its small size, it actually ranks second in population density. When a large amount of people are packed into a small area, crime is an ever-present threat, and in 2003 and 2004, a series of missing persons would send waves of terror through the small state. Eventually, the man responsible for several attacks on women and three murders would be identified. 
This is the case of the Rhode Island Ripper. The town of Woonsocket, Rhode Island has steadily maintained around 43,000 people living within its borders for the last 100 years. The town sits on the state's northern border with Massachusetts and is roughly 20 minutes north of the state capital of Providence. On February 9, 2003, a woman named Audrey Harris was working the streets of Woonsocket when she was picked up by a man outside a laundromat. She had turned to sex work to support a drug abuse habit, and unfortunately that lifestyle came with a high amount of risk. Audrey had called her mother earlier that day and told her she would stop by later in the evening, but she didn't show up. As is often the case with sex workers with drug habits, her lack of follow-through was not initially concerning for her mother. Victims of sex work and drug abuse are often arrested and placed into jail and or rehab, and even if they aren't, they can often go long periods of time without contacting close family members. And this is something that we've talked about in a couple different episodes so far. Uh, the case of the butcher baker up in Alaska, he was targeting sex workers in Anchorage, and these were in some cases women that are still unidentified to this day so family members either did not report them missing or that they had no idea that their family member or loved one had made it all the way up to anchorage alaska the dots were never connected between their missing loved one and a recovered body from the butcher baker's killing spree we also had this in the case of the Superbike Murders episodes, I think it's two and three, of True Crime, where we talked about the couple that was known uh, drug users, the, the first couple that was killed by uh, Todd Kohlhepp, that they had gone missing sometime around Christmas, and they weren't reported missing for a while because it wasn't uncommon for them, when they were, especially when they're on a drug binge, to go off the radar for a while. So unfortunately that is often the case as we see with these sex workers is they'll often get picked up, put into jail for a month or two at a time, sometimes part of their sentence for whatever crime uh, they're either caught with drugs or caught during a prostitution sting. And they might have to do some time in rehab, 30 days, 60 days, whatever it might be and they, they can go these long periods of time without contacting close family. I know there's been some cases where, you know, it's years before uh, a runaway that has turned to sex work and survived that lifestyle will contact their family. So it, oftentimes these missing persons reports are not filed right away, and that's going to be the case with Audrey. It's, it's going to take until April, and Audrey's mother is going to get concerned enough to call Woonsocket PD and report her daughter is missing. What her mother didn't know was that her daughter had fallen prey to a serial killer who was set on targeting sex workers in the area. At the time of Audrey's disappearance, several women had been attacked in the area by a man the police later identified as Timothy Scanlon. His victims had survived horrific attacks where he used knives and metal pipes to critically injure the women, but somehow these strong women survived. One of the victims had told investigators, how she had demanded a $100 payment for her services, and the suspect who would eventually almost kill her had withdrawn the money from a specific ATM. Bank records pinpointed the only person who withdrew that cash around the time of the attack, and the surviving victims ID'd the suspect, who was Timothy Scanlon, as their attacker. And, and here again, we've talked about this many times, uh, police are gonna have a couple cases around this time where 
these women are going to get attacked, uh, usually while they're engaged in sex work. And luckily in this case, they're able to identify the attacker very quickly. Even more fortunate is that both women are able to survive these terrible attacks. And again, we talked about Woonsock. It's a town of about 43,000 people now. Yes, it's just 20 minutes north of the capital, but Providence maybe has roughly three times the amount of people living in it. And so it's not like it's a gigantic urban center. However, Boston is not too far away to the northeast. So there is going to be some crime in Woonsocket. Obviously, there's there's sex work going on. But what makes this unique is this is the first time I've researched a case where you've got a town of under 50,000 people. And as we're going to find out, there's actually two men that are targeting sex workers for brutal acts to eventually to include murder uh, at the same time. And these men don't know each other. They're not working together. It just, unfortunately, as we've talked about before, comes with the this, this high-risk lifestyle. But one of the surviving victims went missing right before the trial. Timothy was in jail, so investigators knew he couldn't be directly involved, and they realized that there could be two men targeting sex workers in Woonsocket in the spring of 2003. It was on May 3, 2004, that Christine Dumont's sister reported her missing. After surviving her attack at the hands of Timothy Scanlon, Christine had returned to sex work as the only way she could support her drug habit. Investigators now had the missing person case of Audrey Harris from February of 2003 and Christine's case from May of 2004, further hampering the investigations with the fact that the bodies of both women had not been located. And just like any of our, our no-body cases so far, at least the ones that, that we've talked about where the bodies are missing for a while, I'm thinking the McStay family, uh, even the case we just covered, Lacey Peterson, there's a time period when these people go missing where the family obviously hopes that they're still alive, the public hopes they're still alive, and the police have to operate as if this person is still alive. And we've talked about it before, I'm in, I want to put this out there, I'm in no way blaming these women for their lifestyle. A lot of the times they get hooked on drugs and it forces them into sex work. A lot of times they are threatened with violence or violence is put upon them to keep them engaged in sex work. So I'm not faulting them. I'm just stating facts when I say that sex work is a high-risk lifestyle. When somebody engages in that type of work, again, it's not usually on their own choice. It's, it's definitely something where they are being forced into this type of this line of work and then they they are hooked on drugs in order to pay for those drugs they have to keep going with this lifestyle we've talked about how this lifestyle is very high risk and the fact that you are engaging in very vulnerable acts with somebody you don't know you don't know their intentions you, you there's anonymity built into what you're doing for the protection of both people but that also makes the woman engaging the sex work very vulnerable because she has no idea who this guy is, doesn't know his name, doesn't know anything about him. And that gives anybody who is a serial killer the ability to bring harm upon these sex workers with less fear that it could ever be traced back to them. And then we talk about that high-risk lifestyle. We've talked about how they sometimes end up in jail. They end up in rehab. They move to get away from abusive 
boyfriends or pimps or some John that's stalking them or whatever it might be. They, they move to a new city to start a new life because they want to get away from the drugs and the sex work and all that kind of stuff. And, and they might not tell their family that they do this. Uh, sometimes it's family that's, that's got them into drugs in the first place, so they want a clean start. So with, when it comes to missing persons cases with high-risk lifestyles, transient lifestyles, it can be very difficult because that person can suddenly show back up alive at any point and you've spent all this time investigating them as a missing person, as a potential homicide, and while that's part of the job, that's it's not an excuse not to do the job, it can be frustrating, but then at the same time, you can't not, and it's a double negative, but you can't not investigate these crimes as well or these potential missing persons. You can't just tell the family. Uh, that was something that law enforcement did way too much back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even the 90s, and, and sometimes beyond, where somebody would try to report their loved one who was involved in sex work or who was a runaway as a missing person, and the police would say, so-and-so always turns back up. We're not going to even waste our time investigating this. And then, unfortunately, that person's body is eventually found. So in this case, it's 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 different because it's not as if the bodies of these sex workers are showing up in wound socket and they're tracing them back to the fact that they were involved in sex work and they realize they have this serial killer who's targeting sex workers and completing homicides on these these poor women. They are receiving missing persons reports in regards to these women that happen to be part of a high-risk lifestyle they thought they had it solved because they had these two women that were attacked. This one woman smartly realizes, hey, this guy used the ATM to obtain the cash he needed to pay for his services right before he attacked me. That ATM is going to have his records. Uh, obviously, he's drawing money out of a bank account that can be linked to somebody, and in this case, him. So police had to be breathing a sigh of relief, saying, we're only a town of 43,000 people. We just caught the guy that's that's assaulting these sex workers. Well, he's locked up in jail awaiting his trial for the attacks on Christine and another woman when Christine goes missing. And what people don't often realize, so when somebody's arrested for a crime, uh, here's another one of those big differences in words, and I slip up every once in a while, but jail is usually referring to a county jail, and these can be from a small one or two cell operation in a very small, not very populated county to something that rivals most large correctional facilities if it's a major county in a urban area. And jails are designed to basically hold people for either short periods of time or as they await trial. Uh, they won't usually go to prison and prison is usually a state-run long-term correctional facility until they've been convicted. So these guys will be and gals will be sitting in jail awaiting their trial. Well, because they're awaiting their trial as they sit in jail, most of their behavior is monitored very closely in regards to communication. And I worked several cases where myself or investigators would listen to hours upon hours upon hours and let me tell you it's not as amazing or thrilling as it sounds 
listening to jail conversations because you're looking for that moment of weakness where they forget that these lines are recorded, that they say that they did something, that they shouldn't, whatever it might be. It's You're looking for an inadvertent confession or an overt confession that occurs on a recorded line. So in order to organize this hit, if this is what it was, there's no way to communicate with people in the outside world that's not going to be recorded in some fashion. When people visit and talk over the, the phone to each other, that's all recorded. There's, there's no way. So unlike in the movies where it seems really easy for somebody from jail to order a hit on somebody else, unless they can use some really great code that's in advance, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of a network of people willing to commit crimes for them, it's not very common to have these hits from from jail and when they do happen it usually involves some undercover officer and and you usually see that the person who ordered the hit from jail ends up getting additional charges against them while they're sitting in jail so police are pretty confident that timothy scanlon has nothing to do with christine dumont going missing so this is how they realize hey we actually have two guys that are targeting sex workers going on around the same time here And as I mentioned, it's harder to link the body of a sex worker to a suspect. So in many cases involving serial killers who target women involved in that line of work, less effort is made to hide the body. Even if the body is found, it is often months if not years after the crime, and linking the crime to a specific suspect is almost impossible. And, I mean, that does depend. It depends on every crime. I'm I'm talking in generalities here. I understand that if someone performs a sex act and then their body is dumped, there's a good chance that there's some level of evidence left behind from the suspect on the victim. So yes, they could be traced back via DNA or trace evidence such as fibers, uh, ballistic evidence if the the crime involved a, a firearm. So yes, I understand there are ways that the body can be linked, but it's not as if it's a spouse or a boyfriend ex-boyfriend or jealous co-worker or somebody that had a likely connection to that person these are usually in the case of sex workers two strangers that are meeting up for likely the only time they're ever going to see each other haven't met each other in the past so when that woman goes missing being able to link her to a specific person outside of any physical evidence is very difficult and so uh, that's again why you'll see a lot of these serial killers that targeted sex workers will not go to as much effort to hide the bodies and as a result oftentimes their bodies are found they are located and then the suspect will go unidentified for years and sometimes you know forever uh, just as a result of the the lack of connection that investigators can make back to a specific suspect as I mentioned before, there was the possibility that the woman had voluntarily left the area and were alive and well in another part of the country. A homicide investigation for high-risk victims with an endless list of suspects, most unknown to police and no bodies, was going to be one of the toughest investigations to solve. So again, that just kind of links up everything I've said so far. Is you've got high-risk victims that, as a result of their lifestyle, have a long list of potentially unknown suspects, men that they have met up with and had intimate, vulnerable moments with, 
and these are guys that are not going to be known to the police and then on top of that you don't have their bodies so this investigation is going to be one where there's not a lot of physical evidence or in this case no physical evidence all you literally have is two missing women from the same town involved in the same line of work but any idea that the two women missing women were not linked and not likely victims of a crime of violence was put to bed when a third sex worker named Stacy Goulet was reported missing on July 4, 2004 from the Woonsocket area. Her boyfriend had called police and while he had been reluctant to tell police that she was involved in sex work, he knew the lifestyle came with risk and he feared the worst. Those fears were also being felt by the Woonsocket PD as they now had three missing females in the last 15 months. The women had a similar lifestyle and could have been targeted by the same individual. The police still lacked any physical evidence that a crime of violence had occurred against Audrey, Christine, and Stacy, but they couldn't just sit back and wait for more calls of missing women, and they decided to be proactive and attempt to identify suspects via an undercover sting. And this is something I give them a lot of credit for. So much of police work is what's called reactive policing, and that's you literally sit around and wait for the crime to occur, wait for somebody to report the crime, and then you go either stop the crime in progress or you take a report, investigate it, try to find the suspect, try to bring charges after the fact, whatever it might be. The police in this case, they could have done that. They could have just sat back and waited until the next missing woman report was called in, hope somehow there's some physical evidence, There's there's a if they get on the case right away, they can figure out where she was at, find some eyewitnesses, see if they somebody saw her getting into a vehicle, get a license plate for that vehicle. I mean, that's all reactive policing with investigation and follow-up. But again, your next missing woman in, in this case, she might not be reported for a month or two. So just waiting for the next crime to occur doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to get any information that's going to help. And meanwhile, somebody else is likely going to have been targeted and killed. So I give them a lot of credit for trying to be proactive, realizing maybe there's a chance that we could identify somebody who's linked to these other two women. And so they had female officers pose as sex workers to see if they could lure a suspect into the open and tie him to any of the missing women. While the tactic was admirable, it was not successful and investigators were sent back to the drawing board. A tip came in on July 11th, one week after Stacy was reported missing, suggesting they talk to Jocelyn Martel a sex worker in the Woonsocket area that might have information about the missing women. Jocelyn was in prison and investigators paid her a visit to see if she could give them any information they could use. And so this is the one other avenue they have to work with here is your three missing women, they're all involved in the same line of work. They are all go missing under likely similar circumstances. And thankfully not every time a person is targeting sex workers and they attack them does does the woman always die so it's very difficult because you you have two options one is as a police officer an investigator undercover officer whatever you're going to do you're going to have to roll up on several sex workers and this does happen when you have people targeting sex workers and the police will approach them and say hey i'm not going to arrest you for what you're out here doing do you but do you have any information because within that world of the johns and the sex workers and all that kind of stuff people talk 
they get information. Oftentimes these women will be on the street together, be two women together. One sees the other one get into a car with somebody. So they might have a description of a car or the suspect and they're hesitant to approach police because obviously their line of work is illegal. So unfortunately, sometimes it takes officers seeking these women out saying, hey, again, I'm not going to charge you for anything that you say. I'm not going to charge you if I find drugs on you. We're looking for something way more important than minor criminal charges for for sex work or drugs. We're looking to try to stop more homicides and figure out who's responsible for these missing women. And Jocelyn turned out to be the perfect witness as she described an attack she had endured after she went to a man's apartment for services. She told investigators the suspect brought her back to his apartment and at some point she turned her back to him and he came up from behind and started to choke her. She fought off the attack from the short but muscular man and escaped the apartment. Unfortunately, due to her line of work being illegal and sex workers being treated as non-victims of crime, she did not report the incident to police. And this is what we did see in the past. And, and granted, this is 2003, 2004. It's a little bit more modern policing, but this is just before I started working as a police officer. There was still a lot of police officers on the force that had joined in the, in the 70s and the 80s that still had that mentality to them in regards to if you're a sex worker, you can't be a victim of crime because it's part of your line of work and and women that had run had run-ins with these types of police officers of course had lost a lot of faith in law enforcement that they're out there to help these women from time to time it's just something they that they don't even think of so a lot of the times they don't report crimes the same thing happens with people who are illegal immigrants that are worried about potentially being deported if they report a crime that occurred against them so just like women that are in this line of work, people involved in either the drug trade or illegal immigrants will often not report crimes of violence against them for fear of them getting in trouble for what they were doing in the first place. And just real quick on a side note, I know a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are women. It did explain in there, and this was a defensive tactic that I was taught. And so just as a real quick public service announcement, I guess, is the best way to put it. If you're ever at a point where somebody is behind you choking you, in this case, this guy's action is to go behind women and grab them from behind and kind of put them in this headlock, choke, whatever it might be. You've got two very good ways to fight off this attack. The first one is to use the back of your head to bash the person in the face. They Their arms are not free because they're being used to try to strangle you so they have no protection for their face which is one of the most vulnerable spots on the human body so if you can just rear your head forward and then slam it back into their face there's multiple different things are going to happen here you can break their nose you can disrupt their vision you can potentially even knock them out if you hit them hard enough but likely they're going to release their grasp and they're going to go into a defensive mode themselves, especially if you break their nose or daze them quite a bit, which gives you a chance to escape, which is what has happened with Jocelyn and one other woman we're going to learn about down the road here. And the other thing that you can also do is you can just basically push yourself back. Um, They're so focused on trying to strangle you that oftentimes they don't have a great center of balance to them. So if you can basically 
push them back. Your legs are some your strongest muscles in your body in terms of the fact that they ambulate you as you go along every day. So you've got great power built into your legs. Even if you're a smaller woman or a smaller guy, you, there's still a lot of power there. And you can drive somebody who's got you from behind. And oftentimes, one of two things will happen. They'll either trip and stumble, especially if there's furniture around or something on the floor that they're not expecting, at which point you might land on top of them, kind of the same thing, try to put as much of your weight and put the back of your head through their nose if you can at that point. Or the other thing is you might, if you're close to a wall, you might run into a wall and the the fact that you're bashing them against a wall unexpectedly, you can knock the wind out of them. They may temporarily let go just because of the shock of hitting the wall and that gives you your chance to escape. So the only thing you can't do is just freeze. You can't just freeze, try to grab your hands to their neck. They are in a position of advantage on you. They likely will have strength on you. It's very difficult to push somebody's arms apart that are that are trying to choke you. So if you just sit there and and fight from a, from that position by only trying to escape the grasp, it's not likely going to happen. So again, just public service announcement here: just go for the nose, go for trying to throw them off balance, whatever it might be. These are things they don't expect and it could save your life as it did for a couple of the women that we're gonna talk about here, including Jocelyn. And Jocelyn was able to provide specific details about the location the attack occurred and Woonsocket investigators checked their database for any information or prior reports at the residence. They found the house was occupied by a lone male named Jeffrey Mailhot and a report from February 15, 2004 from another sex worker named Tess Morris was found. She reported that she had been attacked by Jeffrey in the home, and just like Jocelyn, she stated she was invited into the house, and when her back was turned, Jeffrey grabbed her from behind and began to choke her. She was able to fight off the attack and escaped. It was clear she reported the incident, but the source material does not say if or how much of an investigation into the allegation was done in February of 2004. And to me, this is... It's frustrating because I can see both sides of this. I can see her reporting this, but her not wanting to report the fact that she's there for sex work. And that is going to be difficult because she's likely going to indicate there was some type of a prior relationship with him. I don't know if police talked to him. If they did, he maybe says, hey, she's a friend of mine. I invited her over. She freaked out. I tried to grab her to calm her down, and she's slammed her head into my nose gave me a bloody nose, I let her go. It it doesn't seem as much of a crime if you can explain certain parts of a way. Maybe that's what happened here. Maybe she just called and said, hey, look, I was over at my buddy's house. He freaked out, grabbed me, and tried to choke me. And he turns around and says, yeah, as part of a, a sexual thing between us and it got out of control. You know, I don't know how it went to the point that there wasn't any charges, there wasn't a whole lot with his incident again it might be that they got an officer that just wanted to wash his his or her hands of it and just say there's no evidence a crime occurred here i'm just going to report and be done with it but the difficult thing is you had and you had this i guess going on in early 2004 which is at the same time that the christine dumont and the other woman were attacked by timothy scanlon 
So you had attacks on prostitutes, and then you had this, but then you identified Timothy Scanlon, and this Jeffrey Mailhot is obviously not Timothy Scanlon, so it may have been one of those things where he was being looked at, and then once they realized he wasn't a suspect in these other attacks, then this whole incident just kind of went to the wayside. Again, there's not a lot of source material, all but police are now aware that during the time period that these women are being attacked and going missing, they now have two reports of women going to the house of Jeffrey Mailhot and being attacked in similar fashion, where they are snuck up from behind and, and choked. And with two separate attacks reported that could have resulted in the deaths of the women, investigators had enough probable cause to obtain a search warrant for Jeffrey's home. The search revealed a house that was extremely neat and orderly in all areas except for one, the bathroom. When investigators checked the bathroom, they could see clear evidence of blood spatter in and around the bathtub. They shut off all light to the room and applied luminol to the area, and the blood spatter was found to extend throughout the bathroom, including the floor and subfloor. It was clear that a large amount of blood had been introduced to the scene recently. And this is important. We haven't talked about luminol yet. Um, it, it it's always shows up great on shows like CSI or NCIS or wherever they're using uh, luminol. It always looks absolutely amazing. Uh, I always found in using luminol, it was a gigantic pain in the butt. Uh, the luminol that we had, you had to basically make it up. You had to be a chemist in a way. Apply these crystals, mix it with this this much of a certain chemical, that much of a certain chemical, and it would only be good for a little bit of time, and the area you, you sprayed it in had to be completely dark. So if it was like a large room with huge windows, it wasn't gonna work. But a bathroom, you could put dark blanket or something like that over a window, close a door, slide a blanket under the crack of the door, and usually that would make it dark enough. And what they're looking for is bathrooms, are sources where there can be blood when somebody cuts themselves. The first place you usually go to is the bathroom. Uh, it's easy to clean up. It's easy to render yourself some aid in there if you need to. So just having blood spatter in a bathroom is not evidence of that a murder occurred or anything else occurred. But when you apply luminol and you see that the blood is in such a level that it's gone into the floor, the subfloor, you're realizing that this is not somebody who cut their finger or dropped a, a glass and, and stepped on some glass they didn't see and ended up cutting their foot uh, rather badly or got a really bad nosebleed in the middle of the night. Again, some blood in a bathroom can be accounted for a large amount that seeps into the subfloor and, and spatter all over the walls, usually indication that a major crime has occurred. And while they lacked any evidence at that time that the blood belonged to any victims, they brought Jeffrey to the police station for an interrogation. They put three large photos of the victims on the table and told him they were investigating the disappearance of the three women. Jeffrey initially denied any knowledge of the women or the crimes. But early in the interrogation, he made a huge mistake when he asked investigators if they thought he killed the women. The investigators informed him that they never said the women were dead, just missing. And so this is, again, just a trick used by investigators. They're, at this point, they are investigating uh, still these three women as a missing persons case. Now, with the blood discovery in the bathroom they and the time that these women have been gone, they do suspect that somebody killed them 
but it's very clear in the interview they never mentioned homicide or murder or killed. It was all at that point had been we're looking for these women they're missing have you seen them and they just you know, kept asking him different variations of that at which point he finally kind of went wait a second do you guys think i killed these women and then they got on him and said hey look we never said these women were dead we said they're missing what do you know and so within a short amount of time jeffrey confessed his full involvement in the crimes he told investigators how he snuck up behind audrey put her in a chokehold and suffocated her. He said after she was dead, he rolled her body up in some carpet and drove around town for a couple of days trying to figure out how to get rid of the body. Then while watching the very popular at that time show, The Sopranos, he watched an episode where a mafia crime victim's body was dismembered by a saw and the body parts were put into garbage bags and tossed into dumpsters. He admitted to doing this with his victims and the search was then on for the victim's remains. Audrey's body had been dismembered and put into dumpsters over a year prior and was never located. Christine's murder was over two months old at this point and her body was also never found. But authorities thought they had a chance to recover Stacy as she had been killed less than a month before Jeffrey's confession. Investigators went through the painstaking process of locating the possible area within the landfill her body could have been placed and performed the disgusting job of digging through the trash in the middle of a July heat wave, and on July 27, 2004, their efforts paid off and Stacy's body was discovered in the landfill. And this is, again, probably one of the most disgusting type investigations you can do when you're we're digging through a landfill in the heat of July. If, if you have trash service where you put trash into a residential bin and roll it out, and if you don't clean out that bin on, on a regular occasion and some garbage leaks into the bottom of that and then that bin sits out there in the heat for a day, that smell, if you've ever smelled that, that's from opening up that garbage can, that, that smell times 10,000 is what these people put up with for 10 days to try to locate Stacy's body. And thankfully they did because you know, after 10 days of digging through trash and this heat and the smell and the disgusting nature of it, they're able to recover Stacy's body. Meanwhile, crime scene technicians had been thorough in their search for evidence of the other victims. They had city streets workers dig up some of the water pipe in the street out front of Jeffrey's apartment that would have carried blood and tissue from the bathtub dismemberments. They were able to obtain samples from the bathtub as well as the pipes inside the home and outside that tested positive for DNA from both Audrey and Christine. Investigators also found the saw that Jeffrey used to dismember Stacy and located security footage from a Lowe's home improvement store showing him purchasing the straw. While some of this may seem unnecessary, it's important to remember that confessions alone are not enough to prove murder. People falsely confess to crimes all of the time, and once the suspect is given a lawyer, his or her first job as that person's defense counsel is to get the confession tossed out. Confessions, while they can be powerful tools in court, are more helpful at finding indisputable physical evidence that connects the dots of the crimes between the suspects and the victim. In this case, even if Jeffrey's confession was tossed out, people still had or police still had evidence obtained during the search warrant that showed the victims were dismembered in Jeffrey's bathroom and one of the victims was mutilated using a saw they found in his house and they had him on video purchasing. So even without the confession, they could link him directly to previous similar attacks on surviving women and physical evidence of him concealing the crime after the fact in the bathroom at his house. 
So who is this monster? Jeffrey Malhot was born on November 9, 1970 in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. He graduated from the local high school, and the yearbook didn't even have his senior photo because he was apparently too camera shy. His mother died of cancer when he was 17, and his father died when he was 22. And there's not a whole lot of other information about his childhood. I know with these serial killers, I like to try to break down events in their life that may have been triggering points or any evidence of things like the McDonald Triangle. Unfortunately, we're not going to have any of that in Jeffrey's case. I think Jeffrey's a little bit different type of a serial killer as well. He's one of those remorseful serial killers. It was said that the day that he got caught, I think he called his sister to tell her what he had done, and then he even wrote a letter to a co-worker that apologized for what he had done. So he, he's got a lot of guilt built into him, which is not something we see. He definitely has an emotional attachment to what he has done. A lot of these guys are sociopaths that don't have emotional connections. We've seen that the paranoid schizo disorder and several of the serial killers where they cannot connect to human beings and don't see them as humans so killing is not an emotional act for them jeffrey appeared to have again a lot of remorse a lot of apologies afterwards uh, he thanked police for stopping him because he was said he would have kept killing and so again i don't have a, a lot some people mentioned well both of his parents died young so yeah but a lot of people lose their parents when they're teenagers or in their early 20s and they don't become serial killers as a result of it so there's there's just jeffrey's just a different case and he kept to himself but he was into motorcycles wrestling and watching movies his neighbors said he was polite and didn't cause any problems and one of them even accused woonsocket pd of setting him up for the murders because they didn't believe he was capable of what they claimed he did. Jeffrey held down a job at a factory that allowed him to live a modest lifestyle, and he always paid his rent on time. After work, he was often at the gym, and bodybuilding was a passion of his. He was only 5'3", but was a stocky and strong 170 pounds. As mentioned before, his house was in meticulous order, minus the bathroom. He kept the house neat and orderly, with socks all facing the same way, shirts perfectly folded, and everything appeared to be in place. And they said in there it was almost proof of a level of OCD that he had, but it was strange because every part of the house was meticulously clean and organized and everything had its place, and then they had this bathroom that was covered in blood spatter. He didn't care that that place was a mess. Uh, but this level of organization pointed to his psychological predisposition for committing the crimes. There was proof of Jeffrey's self-image issues, like his refusal to take a senior photo and his obsession with bodybuilding. And if his apparent need for control was combined with low self-esteem, it's not hard to see him operating as a highly organized serial killer who kills for the feeling of control. So I did read a couple different sources that mentioned some things about the psychological things he's got going on here. You've got clear self-image issues, you've got clear control issues at the heart of OCD is a control of your own lifestyle and he it did seem that he had girlfriends in the past it wasn't like it was something where he was a not a good-looking guy that couldn't land himself a date or a steady relationship so it, it didn't appear to be something where he was lashing out against women for rejection it, it really just appeared as if he got this high 
off of the killings and it's that's actually what he told investigators that the, it gave him a rush and again he actually told them he was glad he got caught because he wouldn't have been able to stop himself and was feeling the need to kill on a more regular basis and if you think back he attacked the one woman in february completed his his, his murder on christine i think it was in may and then he killed stacy in july so there's and i don't know i'm assuming the attack on jocelyn was also in the mix of those months so in the the span of roughly four months he's attacked four women and killed two of them so it definitely appeared like it was a escalating situation and faced with the overwhelming evidence against him jeffrey decided to plead guilty to three counts of murder in the first degree one count of attempted murder and one count of felony assault he appeared in court on february 15 2006 roughly three years after committing his first murder against audrey Members of the families of the deceased read victim impact statements and addressed Jeffrey telling him he was a brave monster that robbed them of their loved ones. While Jeffrey's lawyers said he was remorseful, the families took no solace in that and some told him to rot in hell. As part of the plea deal, Jeffrey was sentenced to two consecutive life terms plus 10 years. However, due to sentencing laws, he is still eligible for parole after serving 20 years for each murder sentence and two years of his additional 10. So that 42-year minimum sentence means he'll be eligible for parole in 2047, and he will be 77 years old during his first parole hearing. Jocelyn Martel was hailed as a hero who likely saved many lives via her willingness to cooperate with investigators and identify the man who tried to kill her. Sadly, Jocelyn passed away on March 8, 2011, at the young age of 32 after losing a battle with pneumonia. A big posthumous true blue crime thank you to Jocelyn for her courage. Without her help, the victim list for this episode would have likely been a lot longer. But that is the case of the Rhode Island Ripper. So thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.